0: Oh God
1: Shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Praise are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing.
2: Christian and Missionary Alliance has been quietly and steadfastly working to complete the Great Commission since our inception in 1887. Our 700 international workers minister every day in sprawling cities and remote villages in 67 countries. And bragging about our accomplishments has never really been our style. But today I want to make an exception and brag on you, the Alliance family. In fact, I'm in good company. Jesus bragged on the church in the book of Revelation. Even while acknowledging her flaws, our Lord wasn't silent about his pride for his church. The fact is, you have ministered in more places and more ways than you may have realized. You have shared the gospel in word and deed by walking with your neighbors through the trials of life. You have sent the light of the world to the darkest corners of our planet through your prayers and financial support of our workers. You have helped baptize new believers. You have cared for the weak, the suffering and displaced. You have made our Savior proud by extending his vast love, his vast mercy and grace, where it has never been experienced before. We can all agree that it's his spirit who equips us to carry out our unique calling. But I'm grateful for my opportunity to brag on you, as I'm sure Jesus does to the Father. So thank you, Alliance family. The stories we share are your stories, your ministries, your obedient acts of worship to our soon coming King. And as a Christ-centered, Acts 1-8 family, we can do so much more together than we can individually. Thank you.
3: We had a great time last week uh, with Missions Conference and uh, hearing what God is doing in Cote d'Ivoire and uh, Africa and uh, just wanted this video came to me here a while back and uh, I kind of wanted to save it until Missions Conference and it really is a thank you for what you have done through the Great Commission Fund and your faithfulness to give uh, to that. Last year we gave I think just over $22,000 to the Great Commission Fund which helps uh, keep those 700 missionaries in the, on the field. And uh, <clears throat> last Sunday when we tallied all of the cards coming in, we were just over 23,000 uh, that we were planning on giving uh, next year by trusting God. Uh, to give it now if you didn't get a chance to fill out one of these faith promise cards there are some back on the offering box uh feel free to just in the next couple of weeks pray through it um what god might lay on your heart to to give and we'll continue to add to that total we're hoping that it, it continues to grow over the next two or three weeks um and uh and so that we uh can get a final number then to turn in so just a, a phenomenal time Uh, together and what God is doing all around the world. Well, let's pray Uh, this morning. We have several that we need to be praying for. Jean Ellen Morgan uh, fell and broke her pelvis and uh, while in the hospital had a mild heart attack. Um, Twyla Ames uh, fell early Friday morning and uh, got a pretty good bump on her head and uh, cut. And uh, Tish came home and then within 12 hours went back in. Uh, to the hospital she 's been in for almost a month now, and uh, Gloria Barker is uh, still in so um, let 's just be praying for them and and others as as you know Father, we are thankful that you are, as we have said, the last couple of weeks a global god uh, lord that you you have designs and plans for this world, and that Lord, your gospel is being preached. To the four corners. Lord, we thank you that we are a part of this organization, the Christian Missionary Alliance, that takes seriously the spreading of the gospel. Father, that, that we might take it to places that have yet to hear. And that, Lord, that this gospel will be preached to all nations and then Jesus will return. Father, help us to bring back the King. Help us to, to, to finish the job, Father, help us to remain faithful in giving and, and praying and going, sending ours uh, to the to the uttermost parts. Lord, we thank you for for the Claysons that we met last year, and Lord, for the Livingstons that we were able to meet last week, and Lord, just the, so many the coals that have come through. They're in Germany. Lord, we just thank you for them. For what you are doing, what you are accomplishing in their midst. Father, we thank you for the ministry that you've given us here. In this county, in in, in these cities, in in this campus. Father, that we partner with one another in reaching the lost. In reaching those that, that do not have a relationship with you, that do not know you by name. Father, thank you for Jesus. His willingness to go and and give us a gospel. Give us good news to be the good news for us. That we have forgiveness. That we can experience your grace and your mercy on a daily basis. Because Jesus was willing to die on the cross. And Father, through that we have healing. We pray, pray specifically for those that are hurting this morning. Those that need a physical touch. We think of those that we've mentioned, but we know there are others. Father, that we bring before you. And we just simply ask that you would touch, that you would would heal their physical bodies, that you would heal them emotionally, heal them spiritually. Lord, we, we, we just bring you all that is wrong and ask for your healing touch upon it. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would open it to us. Fresh and new. Maybe it's a passage we've read before. Maybe we've never heard it before. Father, would your Holy Spirit continue to move among us and and challenge our hearts, challenge our minds with your message this morning. Father, we will give you the glory for what you accomplish in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are starting a new series. Uh, We are in the Old Testament. We are going to the book of Nehemiah. Why Nehemiah? Well, there's a reason. Uh, We we don't do anything accidentally here. Some things happen by accident, but we always try to have a plan. We always try to at least have a purpose in in where we're going and why we're going there. And and, uh, if you remember way back in August... 2014 when I first came, we started in the book of Romans and we like to preach through a book from start to finish and uh, <clears throat> as best we can and just kind of walk through and allow the Holy Spirit to, to teach us and, and guide us through the books. And, and we started with Romans because we really wanted to, to lay down a, a theological foundation of what we believe and why we believe it. And Romans is probably the, the best doctrinal book of the Bible, people say if you were, you know, on a deserted island, you could only take one book, and you know, the super spiritual people always say the Bible, and uh, and I say, well, what if you could only have part of the Bible? I would want Romans. That would be the book I want if I couldn't have any of the other books uh, in the Bible. Romans would be it because it, it is just solid. It is it is laying out for us what we believe. So once we laid that foundation, we spent many months in Romans laying the foundation of what we believe. Um, In March of last year, we jumped into Acts. We went from Romans right into Acts because Acts really lays down the foundation for who we are. Not just what we believe, but what we do as a church. Who we are as a church. Uh, What are we to be about? It's It's a clear picture of what it means to be the church, to be the body of Christ. As you began to see that body form... Uh, through the early church when the, when the apostles you know, were first from Pentecost and the birth of the church and as they began to reach out and they began to branch out and, and, and get into all the parts of the world and, and Paul comes in and starts his missionary journeys. And I know in, in about, I think it was uh, Acts 13 or 14, we, we detoured a little bit and we went into Galatians. Because in Galatians, it was that message of freedom that we all needed to hear. That if we're going to be the church, if we're going to be the body of Christ, then we need to understand the freedom that we have to be that, to do that. And, and that it's not a freedom to sin. It's not a, a freedom to indulge in the sinful nature, is what Paul said. And neither is it, remember, the, the, the other slope was that whole legalistic. That, that there's a freedom to live as Christ has called us to live. There's a freedom to live where Christ has called us to live. And that brings us to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah now is all about the work. It's all about building on that foundation, that theological foundation. It's all about being the body of Christ. And now what is it going to look like when we get out and we start to do the work? That we as a church have spent almost a year and a half, year and three quarters, I think, Learning what it means to be a church. Uh, Beginning to understand what it means to be a church. And now Nehemiah is going to lead us into a a period, into a time uh, of being the church. Uh, This is where the the rubber meets the road. This is where where all the the strategy uh, gets implemented. Where we begin to do the things that God has called us to do. Not that we haven't done it up to now. But now we're serious. Nehemiah is serious. That we can't just stroll through Nehemiah. I love this because as I, as I begin to, to look at, at where the next series is coming from, what the next book is, three or four weeks ago I began trudging through the book of Nehemiah uh, as, as part of my own personal study. started having these, what I called, conversations with Nehem. What was going on? What was happening? What were you feeling? What were you thinking? What was God telling you? So that we might now begin to 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 walk through this incredible book because this really is the work of the church can be found in the book of Nehemiah. That this is the business of of Jesus reconciling all people to himself. That's the work that, that God has called MAC. God has called Muncie Alliance Church 2. We're going to begin to unfold what that looks like. How are we going to Delaware County? How are we going to Ball State University? How are we going to the ends of the earth? <clears throat> this is our context for renewal. We've entitled this, this whole series of Nehemiah From Rubble to Renewal. And if you've read... Nehemiah before, you know that he was tasked with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That he was tasked with going back to Jerusalem out of captivity and beginning to rebuild the walls. The walls that had been torn down, the the gates that had been burned. So this is our context of renewal. Where we live, where we work, where we go to school. The city and, and community that we love, that we live in. Nehemiah gives us a lot, of, a lot of principles for renewal. A lot of principles of what it means to renew a city. That, that how we can move from rubble to renewal. How we can move from, from broken down, burnt out to lively. As we journey through Nehemiah, uh, we're going we're to seek to apply these principles that we pull out of out of his story. uh, That that Nehemiah has has given God to give to us what we can learn from it, individually and as the body of Christ. As we learned a few Wednesday nights ago, to understand the principles as we're studying Scripture, to understand the principles, we have to, to understand the historical context. What's happening around this story. It's not enough just to dive in and read Nehemiah. We've got to understand where is that fitting in all of history and what God is doing. Because God tells one continuous story from Adam and Eve until today. It's one continuous story for God. And so when we go back and we look at Nehemiah, we've got to figure out where he fits in that whole story so that we can apply the principles into our portion of the story right now. And so let's just take a little little history lesson uh, on, on where Nehemiah is at. Where does he fit in with the whole story? You recall that the nation of Israel, under Joshua's leadership, under you know, Moses, and then we got into Joshua, that they settled the land of Canaan. This was the land that God had promised them. He had promised Abraham that I'm going to give you this land. This is going to be your land. You're going to become an incredibly great nation. And I will give you as far as your eye can see, you can walk it. And Abraham went and walked all around it. And God said, this is yours. This is going to be the nation of Israel. And Joshua went in and began taking that land. Battle after battle, read through the the book of Joshua and how he conquered and and took over the land. And and then it was divided up between the 12 tribes. And each each tribe got a section of that land as their own. And so you have the tribe of Judah settling around Jerusalem. You have the tribe of of Dan way up north. You have the tribe of Benjamin down by Judah. And and the tribe of Issachar. And all of the tribes in in their various locations. God established a leadership to oversee his country, his nation, his people. And he set up judges. As you read through Joshua, you read through Judges. You see that the judges would rule. But that wasn't good enough for the people because the people weren't happy with the judges. They looked at all the nations around them and they said, they have kings. We want a king. We want a king like they have a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God said, but you're special. You're different. You're my chosen nation. And they kind of said, we don't really care about that. We want to be like the other nations around us. Give us a king. He said, okay, but you're probably going to pay for this in the long run because this is not really how I wanted to do it. And he gave them Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul was not all that great of a king. And Saul was followed up by David. David was a great king. In fact, he was kind of the epitome of all kings. He was the, the model king for everyone else to follow. A man after God's own heart, even though he was a murderer. An adulterer. Uh, He's he, he still, and you've got to take some time to wrap your mind around a man after God's own heart who had openly those kinds of sins. But then after David, there, there came a time David's son Solomon led, and then the country split. The nation became Israel of the north and Judah of the south, and there were two nations now out of the one. Again, this wasn't really God's desired plan, but it's how man's free will and his choice played out. God allowed it to do that. In the nation of Israel, the northern ten kingdoms, is just one bad story after another. There was not one good king ever in the nation of Israel, in the history of Israel. All of them were evil. All of them did what was right in their own eyes. None of them sought after the Lord. And Judah in the south, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, those two southern uh, tribes that, that came to know, be known as the, as the nation of Judah, they would have a good king, then they'd have a bad king and a good king. And they kind of were back and forth between good and bad kings. That they would get a good king that would turn the nation back to Israel, or back to God, would turn Judah back to God. And then an evil king would come along and they'd all walk away from God. And this was kind of a cycle that Judah found themselves in. And God eventually got fed up with the whole mess. He got fed up with Israel first and he said, I'm pretty much done now. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to raise up this country over here called Babylon. And I'm going to let them just come in and wipe you out. And they're going to come in and they're going to be my source of judgment on, your, on these ten tribes in the north and they're going to take you captive they're going to burn your cities down and they're going to take you captive and you're going to live in captivity under the rule of Babylon and Israel went Nye. and sure enough he did it and you would think after Judah watching what happened to Israel they'd straighten up but they didn't they still went good king, bad king, good king and they finally got a bad king And God said, all right, now it's your turn. And Babylon came in, wiped them out, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the city of God, tore down the walls, just rubble, burnt the gates, burnt the temple, tore the temple to the ground. Nothing remained. And took them all into captivity. Listen to the, the description in Second Chronicles chapter 36. It says, But the Lord God of their ancestors sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, that's Babylon, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their choice young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young man and virgin or elderly and aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's walls, burned down all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable utensils. Those who escaped from the sword, he deported to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. Seventy years! The nations of Israel and Judah, the the, the children of Abraham, the children of God, were in captivity, were servants, enslaved, to first the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and then the Persians came in. Cyrus, we learn, because again, to put it back in context, put Nehemiah into context, we have to understand that to read just Nehemiah, we probably need to read Ezra too. That, in fact, in the in the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They were together. And if you read one, you, you needed to read them both. And you also probably need to read Daniel because he happened at the same time. Esther was going on at the same time. And the minor prophets of Haggai and Zephaniah were were prophets during the return, during Ezra and Nehemiah's time. So we probably need to kind of read all of those books or, and bring all of that into play to get a clear understanding of what Nehemiah is saying, and so we we read in those in Daniel and, and some of these others in Ezra that after seventy years Cyrus is the king of Persia and he overthrows ne, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon and he overthrows them and he he has a change of heart toward the Israelites and he says you know what. All of you people, just, you, you can start to go back. You can go back to Jerusalem, resettle that town, resettle the city, find your way back. And so he sends a, a large group back with a man named Zerubbabel, which is probably one of my most favorite Old Testament characters, just because he's fun to say, Zerubbabel. Um, I don't know how to spell it. I never remember if it's two B's and then one B at the end or one B and two B's at the end, but it's bubble at the at the end. I know how to say it. Two, then one. Um, and uh, in fact, if, if if I'm ever playing a, a, an online game and you have to choose your own name, I am Zerubbabel. That, that's, that's, if you ever come across, you're playing a game and you're coming up against Zerubbabel, it's probably me on the other side. I don't know anyone else who would choose that name. But Zerubbabel, under, under Cyrus, who sends back the first wave, Zerubbabel takes about 42,000 Hebrews with him, Jews, back to Jerusalem to begin settling it. And, and almost 20 years after Zerubbabel takes that first crew, the temple is built. They dedicate the temple uh, after 20 years, and, and Darius is now, Darius has replaced Cyrus, and, and Darius is, is king of Persia, uh, when the temple is being dedicated, Darius is then replaced by Xerxes, this is the king that was there with Esther, so now probably need to read Esther, and get that story straight, and, and where Xerxes fits into everything, and, and through Esther, we learned that it was, the, the Hebrews had now kind of, had, had gained some, some honor, among the Persians through Mordecai. If you remember that story with Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai actually is elevated to a high political office in Persia. And the Jews are, are, are beginning to see some freedom. They're, they're beginning to, to, to not just be treated as slaves. They're, they're encouraged to go back to Jerusalem. Now during the reign of Artaxerxes, who comes after Xerxes... Uh, Ezra was decreed to go back to Jerusalem and begin to establish worship again. To, to use the temple that had been dedicated and, and reestablish worship of God. And so there was a, there was a general excitement among the Jews in Babylon, in, in Persia at this time as to what was happening in the city of God. And to what was happening in their beloved Jerusalem. And every once in a while word would come back as to what was being done. And I'm sure that the people, that the the Hebrews that stayed back rejoiced when they heard that the temple had been rebuilt and dedicated. And and that Ezra was now being called and decreed by the king to go back and reestablish worship. Which brings us to Nehemiah. If you haven't already, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first four verses. Because now we get another story. Come, another story has come back. And reached Nehemiah's ears as to what is going on in Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We read that the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, <clears throat> when I was in the fortress city of Susa, one of my brothers, who we believe was actually a a blood brother of his who had gone to Jerusalem, arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had returned from exile. They said to me, the survivors in the province who returned from the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah was in the city of Susa, which was the, that's where the kings spent their summers uh, or winters. Now, I can't remember. Part of the year they would spend in Susa because it was, it was great for the climate. Whatever season they wanted, that was where they wanted to be. And so this is, this is where the, the story of Esther took place in the city of Susa. And it's about the same time that, that Nehemiah is here in Henei and his brother comes. And we, we really don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah. We, we read later on that, that uh, he was a cupbearer. We know that his family apparently was one that decided to stay in Babylon rather than make the 900-mile trek. To jerusalem That's about how far it was. So it would be like walking from here to Winnipeg, Ontario, is where you have to go. It took them about 45 days to, to travel uh, that distance. And so if, if you have a family that's already established, and, and because Persia has looked kindly upon you, and you've kind of established a business, and your extended family is all here, it, it makes sense maybe you would stay. And so Nehemiah was probably from one of those families that had decided to stay. And he becomes the cupbearer to the king, which is a prominent position for the king. That you are bringing the king his wine. That you are are caring uh, for the king's uh, drink. And so staying was understandable. And now, what we have to also understand is that the timeline of Nehemiah... With what happened under Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah is living about 150 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Sometimes we forget that when we read. Because we can just read it right in and it just, you know, it happened last week. Because we read it last week. But Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah's father has never been to Jerusalem. And there's a really good chance that Nehemiah's grandfather had never been to Jerusalem. And yet he longed to see Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because for four generations, they had passed down story after story after story of the greatness of God and his city. And having never seen it for four generations, he longed, he longed to hear what was happening. And when he got this report that the walls were still torn down, now understand this. Zerubbabel took that first crew back to Jerusalem almost 70 years before Nehemiah. And so for the last 70 years, nothing has been done to the walls. Nothing has been done to the gates. The temple has been rebuilt. The temple has been dedicated, but he's finding out that the people are still in trouble. There was something in Nehemiah that longed for Jerusalem that longed for the once great city of God. Now Muncie is a great city. Many of you have grown up here. You've you've lived here your whole life. How many of you have lived in Muncie your entire life? Several of you. You love this city, right? That's why you're still here. Okay, maybe some of you feel trapped. I don't know. I I got a couple weird looks when I said you. But this is a great city. It has a phenomenal history. And this week I was, I was reading up on the history of Muncie. I, I like to do that and, and really any city that we move into. I want to know what happened 100 years ago in this city. What makes Muncie so great? What makes this city a place where people want to grow up? Where people don't move necessarily from. That they just love being here. And so I I look back into the rich history and I discovered the the natural gas of the late 1800s, which really is what Muncie was founded for before it was just an Indian settlement. And and then they found natural gas and suddenly everyone wanted to live here. And, And you have the Ball Brothers moving in with their glass company about 130 years ago. Everyone still talks about the Ball Brothers like they lived down the street. They lived here 130 years ago. Ball State University, established as a teacher's college in, I think, 1899 or 1900, 116 years ago. Neighborhoods started popping up, and and each one, and I didn't realize this until I I read it, and I, I think maybe one of you had told me about it, but it didn't sink in, that each neighborhood kind of was built around a different architectural style. And so you can go to this neighborhood, and it looks this way. You go to this neighborhood, and it's a different architectural style. And I don't know architecture, sorry, you architects, um, to know what's what. But I know there's like a Tudor neighborhood, and there's a Victorian neighborhood, and that, okay, that's the end. That's the end of my architectural knowledge. I couldn't even tell you what those look like, but I read it. And then industry began coming in through the influence of the Ball Brothers. And when the gas went out, other industries continued to come in. The railroad brought many industries. When we saw the auto industry, Borg-Warner comes in. Chrysler comes in. And then about 15 or 20 years ago, the economy took a turn. And those companies that were once coming in and and making Muncie great began pulling out for reasons unknown, speculation probably, cheaper labor somewhere else, whatever the case may be. But those companies began to close, those companies began to move And, and Muncie really went through a very difficult time. I came across the video that I want us to, to show that kind of walks us through this and points to the future. Maybe some of you have seen it. I, I found out it was actually, I think, a commercial that was made about four years ago uh, with this. But do we have that, Neil? There we go.
4: Our home. It's where we're from. Where we kick it with friends and dream about the future. It's where we rest and where we rise. Sure, this city has its shortcomings. It seemed better days. And we've all heard about how it used to be. Churning factories, bustling streets, standing room only in the field house, the wooders, cutters, and us. Yeah, we all hear about those days. But what's next? Yesterday's already been written. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about tomorrow. That's the story we can write. So go, do, be curious, pursue your passion, talent status quo, something, anything. And soon, when the next generation talks about the good old days, yeah, they'll be talking about us.
3: Renewed hope, and there's been a lot of revitalization going on downtown, and you know the new hotel, and, and and trying to draw, bring restaurants and other businesses into the downtown area, and kind of trying to revitalize a great city to to offer hope of rebuilding the city. Now back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Dreamed of a renewed Jerusalem. When he heard that the state of what, of, of what it was, he, he, he probably wasn't even born when Zerubbabel first went. And to hear that 70 years later the people are in great trouble and disgrace, that the walls of the city are still broken and, and the gates are still burned, that nothing has been done. There had been attempts. But the, the neighboring cities and neighboring towns and neighboring nations had, had all scared them away. Had kept them from rebuilding the city. And he, here's, here's Nehemiah upset. For Mac, we're not looking to rebuild bricks and mortar, although that's a part of it. We want to be involved in those kinds of things. To revitalize a, a city, to revitalize the county. But when we look at Muncie, when we talk about renewal, we we have to see the lostness of people around us. The hopelessness of people around us. The brokenness of lives of those around us, those that have been burned by lost hope. Shattered dreams. The the trouble of, of souls separated from God. Many times separated, not even knowing it. The lostness of our great city. And here's principle number one. Every week we'll get a different principle. Here's principle number one. That we have to know, if we're going to move from rubble to renewal, we have to understand this. If your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, then it will never be fully engaged. In the renewal of this city. If your heart is not broken for the city. Then it will never be fully engaged in reaching the renewal of the city. Our church has gone through its own trouble. Over the last three, four, five years. Trouble, disgrace, brokenness, burning. But, but we have a renewed hope in the future. There's a sense of, of excitement of what God is going to do in our midst. And I think we're standing on the threshold of him doing that. But if your heart isn't broken for the city, it will never be fully engaged in reaching the city if we're going to reach this city, if we're going to accomplish the call that God has placed on us to join Him in the reconciliation of all people, if we're going to move from from spiritual rubble to spiritual renewal, then two things have to happen. And they happened to to Nehemiah when the report came back from, from his brother about Jerusalem. One, we have to be broken. When Nehemiah heard the report from his brother, he sat down and wept. And that's not just a little tear in his eye. He wept, he mourned for days, he said. He mourned for a city he had never been to. A city that he had only heard stories about. He never actually interacted with people who had ever lived there. he wept, he mourned, he was shocked at the report, he, he no doubt just assumed that after 80 years of people returning to Jerusalem, that it was going to be great again, that his brother was going to come back with his incredible story of how God had renewed, and the temple was up, and people were praising, and there was dancing, and rejoicing in the streets, and no, they're troubled, they're disgraced. The walls are still torn down. The gates are still burned. If your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, it will never be fully engaged in the renewal effort. Troubled and disgraced. It, it, they, they did not receive this, this new group coming back. When Zerubbabel in the 42,000 and even Ezra when he returned... They were not well received by the neighboring cities. Because you see, once the Hebrews were taken out, people just kind of, squatters came in and just started living in Jerusalem. And now Zerubbabel coming back and chasing them all away. Well, they're a little upset. Neighboring towns are a little upset. Who do you think you are? The first attempts at rebuilding the wall were met with fierce opposition to the point to where the people just gave up. They feared for their life if they continued to build the city. So we'll just continue to live in tents. We'll continue to to just kind of live here and and make our way and kind of keep peace and hope everything goes well for 80 years. Ezra chapter 4. Ezra writes in, in his own telling of the story, says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the leaders of the families and said to them, Let us build with you. Otherwise, all these neighboring towns, these, these people who just kind of moved in when, when the nation was taken out, and, and their ancestors generations later say, Well, let us help you. We'll come in, we'll help, we'll help you build this. Let us build with you, for we, are also, we, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esar-Haden of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the other leaders of Israel's families answered them, you may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone must build it for Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. That seems a little harsh. No, you can't help. Who wouldn't take the help? But you know why they didn't take the help? Zerubbabel had learned also in the stories that when they allowed the nation to be infiltrated by foreigners and foreign gods, that's when things really went bad. And Zerubbabel said, we have to keep this pure. We, we have to keep the gospel. We have to keep the kingdom. We have to keep what God is giving to us pure from all other th- wrong thought and wrong religions. And so he says, no, you, you can't help us. This, this Our God is sending us on this mission. There's a whole lesson in that. But he goes on to say, Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. You see, Nehemiah understood that no walls meant no defense. They were in trouble after 80 years of constantly people being able to just run in and, and ransack and, and run out and hit and runs and other nations towering over them. People all around us are in trouble. We've got to understand that. Our, we, have to, we have to be broken With the understanding of of the trouble that people are in without God. They're defenseless against the enemy. Satan can have a heyday with someone's life who has no relationship with God. His subtle and, and crafty schemes work so wonderfully. I mean, they even work sometimes with the people of God, do they not? How much easier is it when there's absolutely no wall of defense? Matthew tells the time when Jesus was going around from village to village. And he says in Matthew chapter 9, Then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Because they were weary and worn out. This is another way to say they were troubled and disgraced. They were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The crowds were weary and worn out. People around us, as we come in contact with our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our people we go to school with, are weary and worn out. They may look good, but I can tell you, spiritually, they are in trouble. They, they're defenseless, almost hopeless. Unless someone can take the gospel to them, unless someone can bring the good news, unless someone can help them move from the rubble of their spiritual life to renewal. That word for compassion that says Jesus felt compassion for them. I, I always thought that that meant, you know his heart broke for them. But when I was doing a word study on that word this week, I learned that it's not yours, its his heart that was broken. it was his stomach that was broken that that word compassion actually means a pain in the gut that when he looked at the people who were, who were worn out and who were worried who were in trouble who were disgraced who were, who were defenseless it was like giving him a sucker punch in the gut he had compassion he felt for them deep down felt for them for, the, for their, their weariness for their brokenness Jesus sees your neighborhood and he feels compassion for them. At the very bottom of his being. Jesus goes through the halls of our schools. And he has compassion for them. Jesus goes into our workplaces with us every day and he has compassion for the people. That we have a God who loves people. Whose heart is broken for the lostness of this city. And that we need to have our heart broken. We need to see their their weariness. We need to see their, their worn outness. We need to see their trouble. We need to see the rubble that is their lives. And that we need to have compassion at the very deep set of who we are. Because if we are not broken for this city, if our heart is not broken, if our stomach is not sucker punched for this city then we will never be fully engaged in its renewal. We have to be broken. Second thing we have to do is we have to fast and pray. He said, I mourn for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is intentional. It's, it's not something that just happens. That, that he took the, the brokenness that he had heard of Jerusalem and he, he immediately took it to the Lord. And not just in a simple prayer. This was days of mourning, fasting and praying. Fasting had become a, a regular and, and really frequent practice during these 70 years of captivity or 70 years and beyond. That when the temple was removed, they used to just go to the temple and connect with God. Now without that, they, they resorted to the fasting. The times of, of uh, kind of you know, keeping themselves from something or, or prohibiting them from, from enjoying something or, or taking on uh, nourishment or anything to focus upon something of God. A way to commemorate the ceremonies without the temple. So they fasted in remembrance of the fall of Jerusalem. They fasted in the the remembrance of the burning of the temple and the promised return. That was their their worship. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets who who served God during the, the return, speaks of four different fasts that they did every year as a reminder. Daniel fasted for three weeks for the sins of the people. Esther fasted. Ezra fasted with no food or drink and, and mourning over the people. And now we see that Nehemiah is fasting. Maybe we should fast. Not out of a ritual, but uh, of a formula to do, but, but it is one of the disciplines that God says to, to break ourselves, to break our heart, to break our spirit, to turn us back to the things of God. Fasting can be defined as a voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Intense spiritual activity. That's what renewing the city, that's what sharing the gospel, that's what taking the gospel in and and moving people from spiritual rubble to spiritual renew is going to be. It's going to be intense spiritual activity. I want to call us to a time of fasting. It's optional because I won't know whether you do it or not. But to me, the, the first principle in, in getting our hearts broken is an intense action, is a stepping into God, is a is a turning our hearts and our minds to God. And so I want you to set up a time this week and every week from now until Jesus comes. That you're going to fast. And you're going to fast for the intended purpose of seeking God in the midst of the brokenness of this city. To begin to move, to move it from rubble to renewal. To begin to see the, the spiritual revitalization of Delaware County, and Ball State University, into the ends of the earth. Now I'm asking you one time this week, Maybe you pick a meal. Maybe you pick a time. Maybe you, you know what, you're not going to fast a meal, but you're going to fast television. You're going to fast Netflix. That's hardly giving up anything, really. It would be tough for me, but it would really be giving up very little. But whatever it is, whatever God leads you to do, that we begin right now as a body of Christ from now until Jesus turns, that we are fasting, we are becoming broken for this city. Because why? Because if we're not broken for the lostness of the city, our heart will not be fully engaged in the renewal of it. So, two questions I ask you this morning. One, do you see? When you go about the city, do you see? Do you see the broken lives of your neighbors? Do you see the broken lives of your coworkers? The spiritual darkness that so many people live in? Do you see the spiritual rubble in our city, in our county, on our campus? We need to pray that we see things the way God sees them. That we get a a, a real dose of reality. Seeing things the way God sees them. So that first question is, do you see? The second question is, And just as important, do you care? What breaks your heart for this city? What breaks your heart for this county? What breaks your heart for the Ball State campus? What breaks your heart for the ends of the earth? Where does ministry start? Where does the ministry of Muncie Alliance Church begin? Muncie is a great city. But like all cities, many people live in darkness. There's much spiritual rubble around. And as MAC, as Muncie Alliance Church, we have taken on full responsibility for the rubble in our county. For the brokenness, for the lostness. And it starts with our heart being broken for it. Do you see? Do you care? Father, this morning, I ask for broken hearts. Father, I, I ask for, for you to break my heart for this city. Father, enable me to see the lostness and, and bring me to tears, bring me to brokenness, bring me to compassion, to, to a sucker punch in the gut. For the rubble that we live in. For the rubble that we live amongst. Father, that we might bring hope. That as Jesus shared compassion and Jesus showed that he loves us. That he loves this city. Father, help us through our own brokenness for the city. for our own brokenness of the lostness of the rubble that is around us. Help us to be a light. Help us to care. To, to develop that compassion. For lost people. Father I pray for discipline. In this whole area of fasting. Lord that we would be intentional. In this intense act. Seeking out spiritual renewal. Father we would be able to set all other things aside. One time a week. Father, give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the discipline, and break our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Would you please stand? Oh, God, my God, I cry out. Your beloved needs you now. God, be near. Call my fear and take my doubts. Your kindness is what pulls me up. Your love is all that draws me in. I will lift my eyes to the Maker. see.
3: Next week we're going to walk through Nehemiah's prayer. What it was he prayed that we might glean who he understood God to be. Uh, The God of his city, the God of of Jerusalem, but also would be the God of Muncie. I want to encourage you as we step into prayer, because prayer has to be a huge emphasis in our church if we're going to move from rubble to renewal. We need to be a praying church. We need to be a praying people. So Wednesday nights we've actually started a series on prayer. And we end every time with 10 or 15 minutes of just corporate prayer. Just praying together. I want to encourage you to come out. We share a meal at 6 o'clock. The teaching time starts at 7. But just to come together as God's people. Praying for the lostness around us. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God. The Creator of the whole earth, He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to His understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I pray that this week you experience that renewal in your own life and that it becomes evident to those around you. That that somehow you are soaring on wings of eagles. That you are walking and not growing faint. You are walking and not growing weary. That there is a strength within you that, that can only be explained by God. Father, this morning grant us that this this morning grant us your power grant us your strength grant us your renewal Father we might be your ministers of reconciliation the bearer of good news sharers of the gospel an army sent to renew the rubble